Let's take our Bibles this evening to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter number 20. Our text for this evening is Exodus 20, verse number 7. As we consider the third commandment, uh, as I'm titling this message, A Name Like No Other, from the third commandment. So Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 7. It says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. It's been uh, three weeks since we last looked at the Ten Commandments. Uh, we considered previously the first two commandments. Uh, both of those are related to the prohibition of idolatry. The first and the second commandment are connected by this, the prohibition of idolatry, but they are distinct in that the first is a prohibition of, of the worship of false gods, while the second is a prohibition of the right God, uh, of worshiping the right God the wrong way. When we worship God the wrong way, we imply that He is different than how He has revealed Himself in His Word. And when we imply that He is different, we necessarily imply that He is inferior to how He reveals Himself in His Word. So the second commandment anchors us to the revelation of God's Word regarding God's character, uh, God, uh, the revelation of, God, uh, of God's character Himself. God is not who you think He is. God is who He says He is. But the second commandment not only tells us how not to worship God, but it teaches us something about God Himself, namely that He is a jealous God, that He is protective of His own character. We see that from the middle of verse number 5 where the Lord says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He is very protective of, of His character and how people represent Him. And the second commandment fundamentally is a misrepresentation of the Lord. The Lord is not a physical idol. And so when we use a physical idol to represent Him, we misrepresent Him. And the Lord gets very angry at that. The Lord does not delight in misrepresentations of Him. And the second commandment really is, is really self-harm because it is self-misrepresentation. Mis it is self-deceptive. It is deceiving to ourselves. Because as we represent God, the people, as we represent Him falsely, the people that we deceive first and foremost are ourselves. The person that makes the idol bows down to the idol. And of course, how we break the second commandment is not by making physical idols of the Lord God. We don't uh, nor do we imagine God as having eyes and hands and by that breaking the second commandment. But what we do is we imagine a God that is different than how He reveals Himself in His Word. We imagine a God who is apathetic or even sympathetic to the sin in our lives. And you see who that hurts the most. That hurts us because we've deceived ourselves and we've deceived ourselves into thinking that our sin is okay uh, or even that we stand before God right, even when Scripture is very clear that we do not. Now, as we move to the third commandment, there is a clear connection between the third and the second commandment. In the second commandment, it is clear that how we represent God is very important to Him. And we are prohibited, we are forbidden from representing Him visually. There are to be no images of God. The third commandment extends the regulations of how we represent God to how we represent Him vocally. 
Now, the restrictions are not as extreme in the third commandment as they are the second. The second commandment prohibits the use of Im uh, images entirely, forbids the use of images entirely, whereas in the third commandment, we're not forbidden from speaking the name of God, but we are restricted in how we use the name of God. We are to not speak the name of the Lord lightly, or, or we're not to speak the name of God in vain. And these two commandments together teach us and that how we talk about God and further how we think about God matters. God is more glorious and holy than you and I can fathom and we must deal with Him. We must relate to Him in appropriate terms. He is not the big man upstairs and to suggest so is borderline blasphemous. Now it's interesting that the commandment that we have here, verse number 7, uh, specifically relates to the name of the Lord. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, why is it specifically referring to the name of the Lord? Why is it specifically protecting the name of God? Well, when we consider the scriptural references to that phrase, the name of the Lord, or something of that sort, in reference to the name of the Lord, what we find is that the name of God stands for something more than just the name of God. In literary terms, this is what we call a synecdoche. Uh, some of you might be familiar with that. Uh, it is when we refer to something, to the whole of something by the part, or a part of something by the whole. So if my wife and I are driving down the street, and she's driving, and we see a police officer, I might warn her that she better slow down unless the law, or, or else the law is going to get her. Now, that police officer is not the law, but he is a part of the system of law. And so he represents the law. Or you might summarize a meeting that you were at and say there were a lot of new faces at that meeting. Now, hopefully, there was more than a, than a lot of new faces at the meeting. Hopefully, there was something more to that than just the faces. And what you're actually saying is that there were a lot of new people at the meeting. And when we come to Scripture... And when we reference or we see the references to the name of the Lord, that's, that's what the scripture is referencing to. It's not just a mere reference to the name of the Lord, but it is a reference to the whole essence of God. Uh, let me just give you a couple of references here. Deuteronomy 12.5 But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt, thou, sh thou shalt come. The Lord's name was not the only thing that was going to dwell amongst the people. It was God himself that was going to dwell amongst his people, but he used his name to represent his being. Psalms 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. What David is saying there is, is not that the mere name of God is great in all the earth, but that the glory of God is manifest in all of creation. The name of the Lord is special, but it's not just His name that is special. It is He who is, who is special. It is, he, it, is, it is that where His name, there He is. And yet further... What we also find is that the name of God represents the exact reality of who God is. In our passage, if you will, just look back at verse number 5, and please stay with me because we're setting the foundation for 
uh, the outline here in just a little bit. But look with me at verse number 5, the middle of the verse. For, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. So the Lord describes himself as a jealous God. Now look with me at Exodus 34. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 34. And in Exodus 34, verse 14, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The Lord is jealous, therefore his name is Jealous. Do you see, you see what's going on here? The name of the Lord is who he is. It is, it is not merely a description of, of who he is, but it is who he is. It is the reality of who he is. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. <clears throat> Isaiah 57 and verse number 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. It's not just that he has a holy name, it's that his name is holy, capital H. That is who he is, therefore that is his name. One other reference for you, Revelation 19, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, John writes, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is his name, King of kings and Lord of lords, because that is who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the command in Exodus chapter 20, that we are to not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, it is not just a commandment in reference to the name of God, not merely the name of God, but God himself. When we take the name of God in vain, we take God in vain as well. Now, when most people come to this commandment, this third commandment, and they read the commandment, they immediately think about that list of forbidden words that we were all given as, a young, as young children. We were, of course, taught at, at a young age that there are certain words that uh, you should never say, and usually that list of words is connected to the third commandment as to why we should not say those words. And I think this interpretation of the third commandment is a bit narrow-minded. I, I think it misses the forest for the trees, uh, to be honest with you. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, there is a list of forbidden words. Okay, I'm not, not, not rejecting that, uh, that proposition. There are things that you should not say. But I'm saying that the third commandment applies to much more than what we say or what we do not say. Uh, in fact, I would suggest that our entire, entire lives falls under the purview of the third commandment. And we look at it, verse number 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Whatever is prohibited here hinges on the word take. Whatever take means is what is prohibited in the third commandment. And to take the name of God is to carry the name of God. It is to lift up the name of God. It is to bear the name of God. I think about what Jesus told the potential disciples that were going to follow him. He said, take up thy cross and follow me. That is to lift up your cross, to carry your cross, to bear, bear your cross and follow the Lord Jesus. And so when we take the Lord's name, yes, we speak 
the Lord's name. We lift up His name in word and in worship. We carry His name in gospel message to the world. But we carry the name of the Lord in everything that we say and do. Everything of every part of our life is to be to the glory of God. And we as the children of God are stamped with the name of the Lord God in our person. So everywhere we go, everything we say, everything we do reflects on the name of the Lord our God. You consider David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is what the prophet Nathan said to him. By this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. He never spoke a word, but he blasphemed. He gave cause to blaspheme the name of the Lord. And you and I have that same potential in us as well. We may use our words. We may use our, uh, we may use our deeds to cause others to blaspheme and to belittle the name of the Lord our God. So the third commandment not only applies to our words, but our hearts. We should not feel vain feelings toward our God. It applies to our minds. We should not think vain thoughts about our God. It applies to our mouths. We should not say vain words about our God. And it applies to our deeds. We should not dishonor Him with vain actions. Now before we jump into the outline, and it's a shorter message, longer introduction. Before we jump into the outline, we, we need to further consider the uh, the, uh, the, the context of this passage once again, the covenantal context of this passage. In verse number 7 it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's an important word, thy God. This was not directed at the Amorites that would blaspheme the name of God. This command was not given to the Philistines that would hate the uh, Jehovah of Israel. Uh, nor is this directed at, uh, really, nor is this directed at the heathen out there that as he's watching the ball game uh, shouts what I'll abbreviate as OMG at disgust or excitement over something that he saw. That's not really what this command is, uh, it, what this command is getting at. This is really intended to God's children, to God's people, those that can call God their God. It is to those that the Lord says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And it is not the heathen who uses the word Jesus in every other sentence that, uh, that, that this is directed at. It is at you and I who understand the worth of the name of Jesus Christ. And it is you and I who should esteem the name of God above the heathen that is watching the ball game and sipping the alcohol. It is we who have been transformed by that marvelous name and the marvelous power of His name and His blood that should esteem the value of His name greatly. And yet even more the potential for you and I who know the value of the name, who know the worth of the name, who participate in the worth of the name, who have the potential every day to go out there and to take His name in vain. So as we consider the third commandment this evening, I want us to consider primarily two thoughts. First of all, the gracious revelation of His name. The gracious revelation of His name. One of the odd things about this command as opposed to the first two commandments is the switch from the first person to the third person. If you notice in verse number two, I, this is the Lord speaking, I am the Lord thy God. Verse three, 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, verse number, uh, let's see, verse number uh, four, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Verse number five, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Uh, at verse number six, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So the, the first two commandments are dominated by first person language. But as we come to the third commandment, the Lord switches from the first person to exclusively the third person. If you look at verse number 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now this is an odd feature, and it would have been very easy for the Lord to say, uh, Thou shalt not take my name in vain. It gets the same message across. And yet it doesn't. We have to ask, what makes this different from using first-person language. Why did the Lord switch to the third person to convey this third commandment? And I think it highlights for us two specific facts. First of all, that God names Himself. It is the Lord that gives Himself this name. And this is unique from the rest of us because we don't name ourselves. Uh, we receive our names, depending on how you look at it, either as a gift or as a curse. I still wonder to this day why my mother named me Jacob, some sterling biblical character. But there are, as I look around the room, worse names. I'll not point out any, Sister Delilah. Be thankful there's no Adolphs or Jezebels in here. Uh, that would be rough. That would be rough. But the thing about our name is it is such an integral part of who we are. I mean, you know me as Jacob. I can't change that. I, I mean, I guess I can, but setting that aside, uh, setting aside the weird people that change their name, uh, you can't change how people know you by the name that you have received at birth. It's an integral part of who we are, yet it shows the frailty of who we are. Though it is a a critical part of who we are and how we are known, it is not something we can decide for ourselves. And yet that is not the case with the name of the Lord. God does not receive a name from us, but it is He who chooses His name for Himself and reveals it to us. But second, by using the third person, this highlights the name which the Lord draws attention to. Verse 7, again, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now notice that Lord there is all capitalized, L-O-R-D, all capitalized letters. That's following the theme really of the Ten Commandments to this point. And when you see the all capital letter, the L in Scripture, know that it is in reference to Jehovah, Jehovah. There are other times in the Old Testament where Lord is found in reference to the Lord God, where Lord is not in all capital letters, where just the L, the first letter, is capitalized. But in this case, where Lord is capitalized, it is in reference to, to Jehovah, His special name of Jehovah. And what we find is that the Lord connects that special name Jehovah to the exodus of His people from Egyptian bondage. If you will look with me back at Exodus chapter 3, we see... I just want to trace this through a couple of references. But in Exodus chapter number 3, 
the Lord reveals Himself to Moses out of a burning bush. He has a conversation with Moses and instructs him to go tell, P tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And we see in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, that, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So the Lord reveals himself to Moses here in a way that he really has not revealed himself previously. He is the eternal God. He reveals himself as the I am that I am, the eternal God, the self-existent God, the self-sufficient God. He, unlike us, needs no other for his existence and for his, uh, for his, uh, for, for his existence. We are contingent beings. We are contingent not only on him, but from those that we come from for our existence. But he is not like us. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He needs no one or no one or nothing else for his existence. But what we find here that is critical to this story is that the Lord in this passage connects the name Jehovah, the Lord God, to his promise to redeem them from Egypt. You see it again in verse number 15, the end of verse 15. This is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations. Now look with me at chapter number 6 where we see this developed a little bit farther. In Exodus chapter 6, another conversation between the Lord and Moses in verse 1. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God, God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. So here we have this conversation where the Lord reveals that He revealed Himself to their ancestors as God Almighty. But the name Jehovah was not revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. But now as Israel is sitting in Egyptian bondage and the Lord is about to, re to release them from that bondage, to redeem them from their slavery, He reveals to them this name of His, Jehovah God. Look with me at verse, number, verse 6. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you, for, be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out, of the, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." And I will bring you into, unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Now notice in verse 3 and in verse 6, the beginning of verse 3, the, begin, the ending of verse number 6, that he bookends these statements, these promises to the nation of Israel with the statement, I am the Lord. 
what the Lord is about to do for the nation of Israel, he connects to his name, Jehovah God. Now that is extremely important because when you think of the name Jehovah God, the I am that I am, the meaning of the word is the self-sufficient one, the self-existent one, the eternal one. But what the Lord is doing here is he is revealing himself as the God who saves. This is not merely something that he does, but this is, this is something, who he, something that he is. It is connected, as the Lord himself does, to the name of God. And so now, to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, and in their future, and in their past, the name Jehovah God does not only represent his self-existence, his, self his eternality, his self-sufficiency, but it represents the God who is interested and steps into human history to save his people from Egyptian bondage. Now, now, I think if we stop here for just a second, we might get a little blessing. Because, again, let me remind you, this is not merely something that the Lord does. It is not merely that he does save his people from, his, from their sins, and in this case from Egyptian bondage. But it is that he identifies as the Savior of his people. This is who he is. This is his name. And I want you to stop and think about what you think about when you think about the Lord. It's real easy to think about the Lord as creator of the universe. And we should at some point think about the Lord as creator of the universe. But I'm telling you, when I think about the Lord, the first thought that comes to my mind is not of Him as creator of the universe. It is of the one who saved my soul. When I think of the Lord God, I don't think of the one who threw out the stars, uh, who spoke the stars into existence, who said, let there be light first. I do get there. But I think about the one who reached down from heaven and touched a poor and lowly sinner like me. And that is who He is. It's not merely something he did. It is who he is, the Savior of his people. It's a gracious revelation. He is not only the sovereign creator of the universe, but he is the gracious, the abundantly gracious Savior of his people. So we see not only the gracious revelation of his name, but I want you to see in closing, or second anyway, the great transgression against his name. The great transgression against his name. Now let me first state that the commandment here in Exodus 20 verse 7 does not forbid the use of God's name at all. Uh, in fact, I think that uh, some Jews have gone too far in their taking of this third commandment. Uh, there are some Jews, if you read some rabbis even today, uh, you, you, you might find some rabbis that will not write out the name God. They'll write out G-D instead of the word God. There are some, some certain, not all rabbis, but certain rabbis uh, do that today. And that's really meant to convey fear and respect of the name of God, but that takes it too far. Because in fact, the name of God is commanded to be used. We are to use the name of God in our invoking of Him, in our spreading of the gospel. We are commanded to use, uh, use His name. It is not the use of his name that is forbidden. It is the misuse of his name that is forbidden. So what is it to take God's name in vain? Well, very simply, it is to bear his name with futility, to carry his name with waste, 
to lift his name up without consideration for the great weightiness of his name. Some ways that we misuse the name of God is we say praise the Lord when we have nothing that we are praising him for. You'll hear a preacher say bless God as a filler for getting a breath when he has no consideration for what he has just said. Uh, You'll see a trite bumper sticker that God is is our co-pilot. That is a misuse of God's name. Uh, These are some obvious ways in which we misuse misuse the name of God. Even in some worship songs, when you can't identify whether or not it is to your boyfriend or to your your God, that is a misuse of the name of God. He is different from your boyfriend, and he should not be sung to like he is your boyfriend. But I would submit that, that we actually live most of our lives in a way that is taking the name of the Lord in vain. We do so when we worship without consideration of the glory of the God that we worship. And again, we must consider this commandment in light of all that we are, our hearts, our minds, our words, and our deeds. Look with me at Matthew chapter number 15. I think the words of Jesus are helpful here. Matthew chapter 15, the Lord speaking of the vain worship of the Pharisees. And in Matthew 15 verse 8, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain, in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And what Jesus says about the Pharisees here is that their lips were filled with praise, but their hearts were empty of that praise. And this this is a recipe for vain worship. When the heart is not filled with love and adoration, and yet the words come out of adoration and love, that is vain worship. That is using the name of God in vain. The Lord Jesus looks at these Pharisees and He says, They speak with great skill. They know, their, they know their doctrine. They know how to speak about God. And yet in their hearts they have no love, no admiration or reverence of the one they spoke of. And before we're too damning of the Pharisees, I would ask you to recall when we were singing the worship songs even this evening, was your heart filled with love and adoration and respect for the one that you sang of and sang to? How often do we come into church and we sing with our lips, but the pitch of our lips is not matched with the pitch of our hearts? And when we do so, we take the name of the Lord our gods in vain. We can say the platitudes, we can say the cliches, but is it in our hearts? Is it in our minds? Worship's not a thing that we, it's not something that we fake it till we make it. That's not how worship works. That expresses just how vainly we think of ourselves and how we think of, think of God. When we come into church and our heart, heart, hearts do not match what we are asked to sing, what should we do? Well, we should stop it, we should confess our sins, and we should begin to worship the Lord. It's really that simple. We can get our hearts right with God in really a moment's notice. He said if we'll confess our sin, He'll... He is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. 
So we stop and confess our sin, get right with God, then we can worship the Lord. And that is exactly what we should do. But I would submit that in our worship, the fact that we, uh, that we do not take the, or that we do take the, na- the name of the Lord in vain uh, is expressed in more than just how we sing our worship songs. When we read the Word of God and we cannot re- recollect what we just read, when we pray and our minds wander, it is an expression of what is in our heart, and that is that we think vainly of the Lord, that we think too little of the Lord, of our Lord God. And all of this is a symptom of not, not only what comes out in our mouth. This is, this is not only something that comes out in our mouth, but it is something that is in our minds. We think too little of God. Or we think uh, we, th- uh, we, we, we are too familiar with the Lord God. It is, it is a symptom of what is in our heart as well. We don't love the Lord, the, lo- the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And then, of course, it is a symptom of our mouths and, and, uh, and of our actions. Now, the commandment is expressed negatively that we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. But there is a positive implication as well. Because it's not just that we should not take His name in vain, but that we should honor, positively, we should honor the name of the Lord, the Lord our God. Uh, Jesus taught His disciples when to pray, uh, what was it? Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. And that is to be the orientation of the believer's heart and mind to the Lord God. That we strive for His honor. We strive for His glory, for the increase of His kingdom in all that we think, say, and do. And I might argue that we as New Testament believers have a greater connection to the name of the Lord than the, the Israelite of old did. What was it that Peter said in Acts chapter 4 as he was preaching the Lord Jesus, Be it known unto you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom he crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him did this man stand before you whole. It is the name of Jesus that cleanses us. And as Peter goes on, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What what was it that Paul said? uh, uh, Call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. Our identity as Christians is inextricably connected to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about when you got baptized, which was a public display of your identification with the Lord Jesus. You were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You were publicly identified with God. And as we go forth into this world, we are connected with the, with the Lord Jesus, with the name of the Lord Jesus. We bear His name in all that we do and all that we say and all that we are. And so our reputation reflects upon His reputation. That's why it's not necessary to go out there and swear by the name of the Lord. Because you don't need to swear by His name. If you say that you're going to do something as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should do that. There is no extra testifying, no no extra validity to your testimony as a a believer to to, to swear an oath by the name of the Lord, the Lord God. This is a terrifying responsibility that we go out into this world tomorrow and tonight and we represent the Lord Jesus Christ that we can actually have an impact on how people think of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet what a great responsibility it is because we can impact how other people think of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
not only through our negative deeds, but through our positive deeds as well. We can bring people to the Lord Jesus through our honoring of Him. And so I close with this. Let us cherish and honor the Lord with our hearts and with our minds. Let, our, let us honor Him with our deeds and with our words. For there's coming a day when His name will be hallowed by all. Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, that, God the Father. And we look forward to that day when he, will receive, when he will receive that name Lord and every person will bow to him and will proclaim that he is Lord. What a wonderful day that will be. But we don't have to wait till that day to hallow his name. We can hallow his name right here, right now, in everything that we say and do.